It's week eight of quarantine for me. I think. Who really knows? The only way I mark the passage of time anymore is by baking bread. Like half the people in your Twitter feed, I've started making sourdough, and my dough ball needs to be folded every hour. I don't entirely understand why, but I'm committed to the cult of the sourdough, so I don't ask questions. And this absurdly demanding recipe seems to work, so I bake the bread, eat it, and start all over again. But there's no tried and true recipe with helpful photographs and annotations for ridding the world of COVID-19. Scientists are making new discoveries, public health officials are making new models, and politicians are writing new laws to stop the spread of the disease. But there's a lot even the pros don't understand about this virus and the impact it will have on our lives in the next months. We at 538 want to help you make sense of these unknowns. So in this podcast, we're going to break down what the experts are sure of and what they aren't. We'll explore coronavirus mysteries, answer your questions, debate policy decisions, and explain scientific discoveries, all while highlighting the uncertainties that make this new coronavirus so difficult to beat. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. This week, we'll explore why some young, otherwise healthy people are getting so sick from the virus. We'll also chat about the antiviral drug that could speed up patients' recovery time. But first, let's turn to one of the biggest stories of the past few weeks, the new antibody tests that have been popping up across the country that supposedly can tell you if you've already had COVID-19. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding these tests. Using serology data, that's what you call an antibody test, some scientists estimated that the number of people who've already been infected with COVID-19 in Santa Clara, California, is way higher. 50 to 85 times the number of confirmed cases. Other scientists and statisticians were highly critical of this study, and others like it. So I've called up Dr. Gigi Gronval to get some answers. Dr. Gronval is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. She and her colleagues wrote a report about these antibody tests called Developing a National Strategy for Serology in the United States. All right, Dr. Gronval, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. To begin with, can you just explain what a serology test actually is? Sure. Um, so serology tests test for your response to the virus, not the virus itself. So it can test for if you have the virus currently or also if it, you had a past infection. Right. And it's looking for antibodies, right, which are immune proteins, like proteins your immune system produces that help fight the disease, right? That's right. And they, they stick specifically. So they antibodies are raised to different parts of the virus, and so they will bind to, to different parts of them. Uh, a test, if it's not designed well, that you might test for COVID-19, but you'd also pick up some other coronaviruses. But if you test, if you design the test well, then you shouldn't have that cross-reactivity. Why did you and your colleagues write this report? Well, we started out I started out really wanting, this is weeks ago, 
like, oh, well, you know, we don't have PCR tests. Um, you know, the people aren't getting tested. So how are we going to know who is immune when we need serology? And that's the key. That's, you know, and so I had all these great hopes of like, well, this is going to be, this is going to solve the whole problem. Maybe everybody's had it and then we don't need to worry about it. And, you know, like everything else in science, the closer you dig into it, uh, the more you realize that, um, you know, it's more complicated. There's actually quite a lot of tests out there. I think in response to not having enough tests for testing for the virus, the ones that the tests that everybody's been clamoring for, the FDA took a different approach to the serology tests and kind of a let a thousand flowers bloom approach and made it pretty easy for companies to enter the market. There are a few tests four that have what is called emergency use authorization, and they can be used to buy clinical laboratories and they have FDA approval for that. The rest of the tests are internally validated. So they're not, it's not clear to the public necessarily what kind of tests are out there or how good they are. How accurate are these tests? Do we know? So there, there are two things that people look for. There's the specificity and the sensitivity and for a good test, a really good test, it should be close to 100%. And for some of the tests, it's more like 80-something percent or lower. Let me quickly explain what specificity and sensitivity are. If the specificity of a test is below 100%, it means there's a chance for false positives. So someone who has never had the virus could test positive for antibodies. If the sensitivity of the test is lower than 100%, there's a chance of false negatives. And even a small dip in the specificity or sensitivity could have big effects. Let's say there's only a 5% chance of false positives, but really only 1% of the population has had the virus. That means that for every 1,000 people, 60 will test positive, and 50 of those people won't actually have had the disease. Okay. Back to Dr. Granval. For a false negative, you're harming somebody maybe economically if you put restrictions on them. But for a false positive, you could be setting yourself up for starting a new chain of transmission. And so that's that those are serious considerations. There's also then the challenge of okay, so you absolutely know that you had the infection at some point in your past, what does that mean? And the meaning of that is also a challenge right now because um, we presume that people who have had the disease are immune for some period of time. We don't know how long, but if we're going by past examples like SARS, at least a year or two. But for people who had an asymptomatic infection, is that going to be the case? Um, so we, we just, there's a lot of data needs here that we just don't know how immune somebody may be and for how long. I mean, it's really a research project. This virus was unknown to science just a few months ago. And so knowing the durability of immunity, it's going to be an ongoing thing where you constantly are looking for neutralizing antibodies and learning about different other parts of the immune system that are involved. It's, it's a research project. These tests are right now mostly useful for public health because it's really important for public health authorities to know 
what the prevalence of disease is and, and has been. I mean, how might a public health department use this information then? Well, it's important for public health for a number of reasons. So you want to know what the, the trends are in your community. Is, are infections going up or down? How long has it been going around? Are measures working, like physical distancing and other kinds of measures? How, how much is that working? You know, there have now been a number of very well-publicized studies using serology. There, was, there were two out in California, one in L.A. and one in Santa Clara. And then there, there have been um, some studies in New York as well. What do you think of those studies? Do you think they were well done? Yeah, I've been following some of the the controversy. There have definitely been some experts who have had different opinions on the on the studies and the sampling methods. But uh, what I took from it was, you know, yes, it could be that the numbers are inflated, but I took it as a as an upper boundary. And so with that, even if it's if it's 20% of the population that's been infected, at some point in the past, or 10% or 5%, there's still a lot of the population that's still very vulnerable. It's a clear majority of the population. And I have been hearing people talk more about herd immunity, and it's certainly nowhere close to being enough for herd immunity. Herd immunity is what happens when so many people in a community are immune to a disease that the germ can't easily find new hosts to infect, so it just fizzles out. We often talk about this in relation to vaccines. When enough people get vaccinated, they can block folks who can't get vaccinated, like pregnant people and babies, from ever encountering the germ. For diseases like measles, herd immunity relies on more than 80-something percent of the population being immune. For SARS-CoV-2, people have estimated using models, but nonetheless, that would be at least 70% of the population that would need to be immune. What information do we need in order to make serology testing really useful, not just from a broader public health perspective, but for an individual to kind of get a sense of their risk, maybe dropping social distancing measures? Serology tests cannot be the sole reason to either participate or not participate in activities. It's not a go-no-go situation. It can't be the basis of an immunity passport for a number of reasons. An immunity passport is a strategy some countries are considering for how we get our society back up and running. It's a certificate stating that you're immune to the disease and can go back to work or school. So this, the idea came, um, I think, from vaccination. To get to some countries, you need to have like a yellow fever vaccine, and they will check that at the border. But it's got these challenges based on we don't know how long immunity lasts or what the correlates of immunity are. And then there are these perverse incentives that you worry about creating um, by having a passport. The perverse incentives being that people would commit fraud or would intentionally get the disease to be able to participate or to be released from physical distancing. Right, particularly when so many people are already out of work. Exactly. And so you're creating some pretty big financial pressures to be able to have the virus, which, you know, for a lot of people, it would be just fine for them, but then they can transmit it to other people. It's a public health nightmare for to create that situation. So it has to be just one tool among others. Um, it has to be in a collection of other tools with physical distancing, limiting contact, 
changing hours that things happen, um, staggering times where people are in places, minimizing group activities, things like that, until there's a vaccine or some other way to, to more broadly give people immunity, we're not in a situation where serology can be that passport. I think we can end there. Thank you so much, Dr. Granval. I really appreciate it. We know that older people are most at risk for getting seriously sick from COVID-19, but some younger people without any underlying conditions are getting sick too. 538 reporter Kelly Rogers has been looking into why. Kelly, we've heard a lot about the risks of COVID-19 on older people, but I know you've been looking into why some younger people are getting really sick as well. So to start off, let's just talk about numbers, just how many young people who otherwise are healthy are getting severely ill. Right. So if you look at the United States, um, I've got some numbers here from the CDC. 34% of the confirmed cases were in patients under the age of 45. So then of the patients that we know were hospitalized, about 20% of those were under the age of 45. And those that we know were admitted to the ICU, 12% were under 45. So obviously, the more severe it gets, the less likely that you have younger people in those groups. Uh, and the CDC also reports that the case fatality rate is less than 1% for people between the ages of 20 and 54. So that, again, the severity tends to get worse the older age group you get into. It is not impacting younger people nearly as severely as older groups. What I was trying to uh, take a look at was those sort of outliers within that young healthy group who are getting a severe illness, who are going to the ICU or dying because that's unusual. Uh, and, and we see this with basically any kind of infection. There's always going to be a handful of people who seem healthy or otherwise not at a great risk, but somehow still end up getting a severe infection. That's true of basically any kind of illness that we see, and it's true of COVID. And so I was just trying to take a look at what might be causing that in this particular disease. So what are some of the hypotheses about why certain young people are getting so severely ill? Right. So there's a couple of things that scientists are hypothesizing. You know, we don't know for sure yet because we're still just beginning to start this research. But one of the things is genetics. So we do know that your genetics can determine how your body reacts to different infections, how your immune system is built and functioning. And so they want to take a look and see if there's any kind of genetic uh, mutation that might predispose somebody to being at risk for a, a worse infection than other people in the otherwise young, healthy group of their peers. This is something that we, we have seen with other diseases. You can have different genetic mutations that can make you more likely to get an infection or actually be protective and make you less likely to get certain infections like HIV. There's a, a genetic mutation that can make you less likely to get that infection. So we know that there's a, a precedent there for genetics having a role in this. And they're really just starting to investigate and see what could be playing a role here. So just to be clear, like, this is a genetic mutation that maybe no one would have ever known had COVID-19 not emerged in the population. Like, it's not something that necessarily would have affected people's immune systems generally. This is a mutation that might be very specific to how 
this coronavirus, um, you know, makes you sick. Definitely. So, for example, one of the ones that researchers are really curious about and, and looking at is called the ACE2 uh, protein. So this is like a protein that lives on the surface of some of your cells, including your cells in your respiratory system. And this particular virus, the coronavirus, uses its spike protein to go into this ACE2 receptor. And that's sort of like a, a lock and key scenario where the ACE2 is the, the lock and the spike protein is the key. And just to be clear, that spike protein is that Basically, those little things sticking off of the illustrations of the virus that you might have seen that kind of give it that crown effect. Yeah, yeah. So that's the spikes of the crown. Um, and that sort of works as like the key to the lock, which is how it invades the cell, which is what the virus is trying to do. It wants to invade your cells so that it can reproduce and then bust out and invade more cells. And so... There's a chance that there could be a genetic mutation where some people might, for example, produce a lot more of this ACE2 receptor on their cells. And if you can imagine, if there's a bunch more of these sort of doorways into the cell, then that gives the virus even more opportunities to invade, and that could maybe cause a more severe infection. This is all just hypothesis at this point, but it's one area that could have a particular, very specific way that the virus is taking advantage of a genetic mutation that might occur in some people. What are some other hypotheses that scientists have right now? Right. So another one um, that they're considering and taking a look at is called infectious dose. So that's like the amount of virus that you're first exposed to that gets you sick. And you can, again, imagine if you are working in a healthcare setting in the ICU and you're around infected patients all day long, you're going to have exposure to a higher amount of the virus than someone who maybe just went to the grocery store once and, and you know, touched a surface someone had sneezed on. That's going to be a different amount of virus that you're first exposed to. And that might have a difference in how severe your infection is. So that's something that they're investigating. There's a chance it, it could have nothing to do with it. it there's sometimes a, a microbe, you know, it only needs one and then it just multiplies quickly enough that it doesn't matter if you had one or a hundred, you're going to get the same infection. Um, but that's something that they're starting to take a look at. Do we have any evidence that people who are exposed to a lot of virus, say in like a healthcare setting or something like that, that they're getting much more sick than other people? We don't have anything like that yet. So scientists are just starting to take a look at this question. And it's based more on what we know about other diseases than anything specific to COVID. So we know with other types of microbes that higher infectious dose can cause a more severe infection. So that's a place that they want to start looking for clues and see if that might be a factor here with COVID-19. And sort of, sort of the flip side of that coin of how much you're exposed to is also your viral load. So after you've already got the infection, how much virus is circulating in your body and whether or not that impacts how severe the illness is. This is another sort of side to it that, that researchers want to take a look at. And they can do that by measuring the viral load in active sick patients and comparing it to other groups to see if having a higher viral load is causing a more severe illness than less. And so that just to clarify, that doesn't mean like how many viruses you encountered when you first caught the disease. It's more how much the virus has replicated within you, right? Right. And those two could be related. If you're exposed to a higher amount, it might sort of give the virus a jump start to begin with, but it can lead to different uh, results down the road. So where you have viral load a lot, for example, is with HIV. Obviously, a higher viral load can cause a more severe illness and also make you more infectious. Whereas if you're able to lower the viral load, you have less severe illness and also are less infectious. So that's 
one virus where this is a really clear correlation. It's like, it could be this, or it could be that, or it could be none of these. We don't know yet. And it's really unsatisfying. But this is what scientists do all day is try to solve these mysteries for us. Yeah. Well, thank you to the scientists who are unraveling these like naughty messes. <laughs> I know we talked about there being variety in people's ability to potentially get infected with this new coronavirus, but could there also be variability in people's just immune response to the virus? Right. So that's Again, another area that researchers are looking at. There's sort of a number of ways that could play out. There's the genetic role that we talked about already. There's people who are immunocompromised for other reasons, whether it's treatment for different diseases or other other underlying illnesses that could just make it harder for their immune system to properly mount a defense. And then there's also a, a chance that having previously been exposed to either this coronavirus or a similar coronavirus could actually make it easier for the virus to infect a person and cause a more severe illness. And the reason we're even considering this is because we've seen it with other viruses. So with dengue, for example, typically, first time you get dengue, it's not so bad. But if you get it a second time, it can be really severe. And just to be clear, dengue is a mosquito-borne infection. Um, and it's a it's a virus that can make you have a really high fever and chills and other sort of flu-like symptoms, but also um, it's associated with like severe body aches and some other pretty serious symptoms and, and can sometimes lead to death. Exactly. Yeah. And it's typically the secondary infection where it's a, a worse response, which is strange because you think, okay, I've already been exposed to this virus once. My body has the antibodies. I should be able to fight it off a little better. That's how immunity works, right? But with dengue, for example, um, there's a, a, a phenomenon called the antibody-dependent enhancement, where basically the types of antibodies that your body has produced and the number of them results in them being able to bind to the virus because it does recognize them, but not being able to kill it. And then what the virus does is takes advantage of that binding as kind of like a new key to use to uh, get into cells. And it actually makes it even more efficient for it to infect cells and to replicate. And so sometimes our immune system can kind of um, cause more problems for us rather than help us out. And so they're taking a look at that, that that could be the case with coronavirus. Again, this is one that it's still just a hypothesis. That's so frustrating and counterintuitive. Like we tend to think of antibodies as basically our body's best defense and memory for these terrible illnesses. So if you have built up antibodies for a particular infection, uh, you know, we hope that that means that you can't get an illness again, or at the very least, you would get it in a more mild way. Um, but this is really like, taking all of our best weapons and turning them against us. Yeah, and that phenomenon is really interesting because it's a case where actually having a few antibodies is worse than having none at all because they're having this sort of counterintuitive enhancement effect with the particular virus. Um, you know, in general, antibodies are a good thing and do help us build that immunity, but there are certain cases where it can kind of work against us. And I mean, one thing I've learned from reporting on this and talking to experts is just how complex our immune system is. It's not like one thing that comes out and fights the virus. It's many, many different systems all working together to try to mount a defense, learn about the virus, remember it for next time, create things that are staying in the body, but not taking up too much energy, making antibodies that we don't need right away. It's like very complex and really sophisticated, but doesn't always work exactly the way we might hope it would. One thing I guess I don't understand about this hypothesis is that the 
disease is relatively new. You know, it's not like anyone necessarily could have encountered this disease a year ago or 10 years ago or whatever. So are we saying that the young people who are getting very sick, are we saying that they've potentially already encountered COVID twice? It could be that you got, you know, exposed to it, had a really mild or basically asymptomatic infection, and then a couple weeks later are exposed to it again, that could potentially be a risk factor. There's also a chance that other coronaviruses that are similar, so the sort of SARS original, for example, could be close enough that it would cause this same kind of effect. So you were exposed to SARS in 2002 when it was around, and those antibodies are existing in your body, and then SARS-2, COVID-2019, is able to take advantage of those antibodies to get this enhancement effect. Right. What about just other types of coronaviruses, like the common cold? Is there any sense that like those could also be potentially causing this enhancement? Yeah, that's what they're looking at as well. And again, like we don't know that this enhancement is even happening at all. It's just something that they, they want to take a look at because we have seen it with other viruses before. And there was some evidence that this was happening with the first SARS based on, as you mentioned, exposure to those sort of common cold coronaviruses. There was a, you know, some research done there that suggested this could be happening. So that's why they're thinking, oh, well, let's check and see if it's happening now. One last area that's also being investigated is the microbiome. So in and on our body are microbes that exist. There's viruses, there's fungi, there's bacteria, and they can help us or they can hurt us. And Sometimes we've found in the past certain microbes can either bolster our immune system and make it better able to fight off infection, or it can hinder it and make it less capable of fighting off certain infections. The microbiome is hyper-individual, so my microbiome is going to be different from yours. And so if we can figure out if there's a certain microbe or a certain set of microbes that work together to either hinder or help the immune system with COVID-19, that could help with potential treatments and also potentially uh, warning people if they're more at risk. This is also complex. Not only are we looking at, you know, our own immune systems and the way our own genes sort of work, but we're also looking at the uh, effect of all of these millions of other microbes we're carrying around with us um, and how they might interact with COVID-19. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, you know, I talk to these experts who do this research all the time for all kinds of diseases. And it's only because this is such sort of an urgent outbreak that it's getting all this attention. But you know, they're like, this is our day to day job. This is what we do. We try to solve these mysteries, we try to figure out why it is that some people have a severe reaction and other people don't. And we sort of go from there. And it's feels really intense right now because we're all seeking answers. And so everything's been kind of pushed to the limit of how quickly can we solve all of this. Um, and so researchers know what they're doing. They know how to do this. It just takes a bit of time. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for chatting with me today. And when you learn more, please come back on the show and give us an update. Yeah, I can't wait. As soon as we start getting results published, I will be eager to share them with everyone. <laughs> And now for a bit of good news, with your classic 538 gut check about just how excited to get. There's some early evidence that an antiviral drug called remdesivir could speed the recovery time of COVID-19 patients. Remdesivir is an RNA polymerase inhibitor. 
Basically, it blocks an enzyme that keeps viruses from replicating their genes. It was used unsuccessfully to fight Ebola back in 2014. But at least in the lab, it worked well to stop infections with previous coronaviruses, like SARS and MERS. So scientists around the world started testing it as a treatment for COVID-19. And we just got preliminary results from the largest of those trials. The study was done by the NIH's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and followed over a thousand hospitalized coronavirus patients who'd had symptoms involving their lungs. They might have needed oxygen or ventilation. Some patients were given remdesivir, while others were given a placebo. And the study was double-blind, meaning that neither the patients nor the people administering the drug knew who was getting which treatment. Now, the results haven't been peer-reviewed, so take this all with a grain of salt. But the people who got remdesivir recovered and could leave the hospital 31% faster than those who didn't. Although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%, it is a very important proof of concept. Because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. For Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, this is an important first step toward finding a working therapy for COVID-19. Maybe we're at 31% improvement today, but as scientists test new combinations of drugs, we might get to 50% or 75% or even that knockout 100% that Dr. Fauci mentioned. Obviously, this is encouraging news, and it's coming at a time when we all desperately need it. But I do want to add a note of caution here. I've already started seeing questionable graphics in the news that showed data on how remdesivir lowered the mortality rate in patients enrolled in the trial. Now, there were fewer deaths among patients who got remdesivir versus those who got the placebo, but there wasn't a statistically significant difference. Also, a recent Chinese study of remdesivir found no benefit to the drug in severely ill patients. That study has some issues, but long story short, things are moving fast these days. More work still needs to be done to understand just how effective remdesivir is and who will benefit from it most. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Now it's time to fold my sourdough. It's so demanding.